Well, welcome, everybody. Um, uh, I wanted to just say a couple of words before we turn to Esther. And uh, it's uh, obviously an honor to have her here for the Stamp uh, Memorial Lecture. And um, what I wanted to do is basically just say a couple of things which I think are kind of a good way to introduce the, the, what we're going to talk about and then I'll discuss what we are going to talk about in the structure and then turn it over to Esther. I think that the, the, the first thing I want to say, it's a real pleasure to have Esther here because we sort of grew up together. We sort of finished our PhDs roughly the same time, tried to do different things in development economics. And what I've noticed from that sort of process is that the... Um, the way that development economics is done today changed dramatically in that period. So we're talking basically about sort of the late 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And the way it changed was dramatic in the following sense, that when I first came into development economics, it was largely a, a topic which was dominated by theory. There was lots of you know, incipient data collection going on. But what was really dramatic was, I remember very distinctly meeting Chris Udry at the World Bank uh, in the early 90s. And he really, you know, I'd read about the work that Pranab Barden had done. I, you know, looked at that stuff. But Chris had gone into these villages in, in northern Nigeria and actually spent time there and looked at what was going on. And then what happened after that, when Esther and Abhijit and Michael came in, is they sort of combined the experimental approach to that to that sort of field research based doing, uh, way of doing research. And I think what was so exciting about that is that suddenly it opened up our eyes to what was actually happening in these contexts. And around that time, a whole bunch of organizations such as BREAD, which started with Michael and Abhijit in, uh, in, in, in 2002, me and Esther started the CPR development uh, network, I think in around 2006. Um, and before that, there was no, you know, sort of development network, network of development economists in the U.S. or in Europe. And part of what would happen is there was a sort of a confluence of interests where the kind of central focus was improving human welfare, but suddenly there was this, this new way of generating data which could not only be understood by other academics, but actually used by policymakers. So the sort of second tranche of what happened, apart from the sort of formation of a field, was that suddenly that field really moved into policy. And organizations like the Jamil Poverty Action Lab, set up around the, you know, in 2003, uh, IPA, later on places like the IGC, which is based here, were all part of taking all that research into policy. So it's been an incredibly exciting time. And what is really, really distinctive about uh, the prize that Esther, Abhijit, and Michael have just received is it's astonishing how young Esther is. <laughs> you know, and you start to think about why is she so young? Michael's pretty young. Abhijit's pretty young. And the reason is that the speed of transformation of the field has been so rapid that suddenly from being a field that was sort of a little bit on the margins of economics, it's become the central field. And I think, w w apart from the reason I've already given, is that there has been an understanding now that the kind of confronting the big issues in the world is of central importance. 
and poverty probably being extreme poverty being the biggest of those at the moment. Now, there's certainly many others, as we'll hear about in the book, uh, which are, are coming to, uh, uh, into focus. So what I'd like to do is basically the following. Um, Esther will come and talk about uh, what I was trying to sort of point towards, which is this movement. We like to call it a, uh, a movement in development economics. And what's special about it is that it's something which we've felt enormous motivation to be involved in. I think it's fair to say we've kind of spent much of the last 20 years sort of working on this. But what is also really interesting is this is really a prize for the 21st century because we have this goal of you know, eliminating, not just halving, eliminating extreme poverty by 2030, but we need to have concrete evidence in order to how to achieve that. And so what we'll do is, after a little, you know, since basically we organized this lecture and then the prize happened, so it's impossible to separate the prize from the lecture, she'll sort of reflect a little bit on you know, that, that, that movement. Then we'll talk about the book. And what I'd say is exciting about the book is many of the kind of the type of work that was encapsulated in development economics is now being moved to different topics, some of the kind of big challenges that not only developing countries face, but all countries face. And then I will, based on a, a survey done of uh, undergraduates studying economics here, point to a couple of challenges, which at least they've identified. Uh, and we'll have a, you know, I'll ask a couple of questions and then we'll open it up to uh, everyone to ask questions uh, to Esther. So without further ado, Esther Duflo. Thank you. Thank you so much. Am I being mic'd? Yes. So first of all, uh, huge thank you for uh, um, Robin for this generous introduction. Uh, to the LSE for uh, inviting uh, me to present this lecture uh, ages ago, way before uh, anything excited ha exciting happened in October, and for all of uh, for all of you guys to be here uh, to be here today and to be more generally student of economics and interested about these issues. Um, so I think. Uh, Michael uh, Kramer, Abhijit, Balardi, and I have, from the beginning, from the very first day, um, tried to say that this Nobel Prize is a Nobel Prize for a movement, that uh, we have no business uh, winning a Nobel Prize for our own contributions, which are okay, but uh, uh, on their own, you know, just uh, some, you know, some very small part of something that is much bigger than us. Um, what uh, maybe we have, all three of us have put uh, an enormous amount of effort into um, creating institutions that have allowed as many people as possible to use a tool that we felt was powerful, which is a tool of randomized controlled trials, on a question that we felt was absolutely unavoidable and people should think about day and night uh, which is global poverty. That's the issue that animates all of us, uh, and that's the issue that we have spent uh, our career working on. But from the very beginning, it was clear to, uh, to the three of us that uh, no individual person can really uh, make a dent. Uh, and in fact, when uh, we started uh, um, using randomized controlled trials in our own work, very quickly came the 
the, the criticism of, oh, but if you find something somewhere, how do you know that it generalizes somewhere else? And of course, we don't know that. Uh, one particular experiment is giving you one little dot into a picture that is so much bigger than that dot, and you cannot really figure out without accumulating many, many, many dots. And that in, implies not only replicating the same uh, program in various places, like we've done when we studied microcredit, where we didn't stop at the first study, we kind of we waited to even talk about the results until there were many studies, so that we could say whether anything was context-dependent or, context or not. But also accumulating different programs in, uh, that do different things, but maybe are trying to get at the same place. For example, if you think about you know, the crisis of learning in primary schools in developing countries, then it is not enough to show that, which was Michael's first experiment, which was developing as, we, as I was a student, that, oh, as it turns out, textbook on their own don't, don't make a difference to the vast majority of students. Had he just found that, then it would have been maybe a little depressing, but sort of insufficient. But once you accumulate a number of studies showing, looking at textbooks and what came after textbooks were flip charts and people were like, what is it going to go next? Like, who cares about flip charts? And it was a total, I think it was a total misconception. We deeply cared about flip charts at the time because you have to look across various type of inputs to know that by and large, just for example in this case, by and large, just giving inputs without changing the pedagogy uh, isn't going to make a big difference. And then on parallel, there, is, you know, there was work uh, done by Michael, done by Kartik and others looking at incentives and showing maybe more promising results, but with some caveat, and again saying, well, incentives will work again to the extent that they are combined with a sense of what is the objective. And then, you know, my work and Abhijit's work with Pratham starting to look at... Um, to look at uh, remedial education, moving on to the work we've done with Rachel on teaching at the right level, and then moving on to how we get teaching at the right level mainstream in the system, kind of only progressively. It's not any single of this study on their own is uh, all that earth-shattering. Altogether, they have given us a picture of what ails, in, for example, in the case of education in developing countries, and that has two consequences. One is an intellectual consequence, which is we are learning about uh, a system, the deficiency of a system, maybe where it's coming from, human behavior, teacher's behavior, kids' behavior, etc. So as an intellectual pursuit, that's interesting. And two, of course, is policy, which is uh, it's not any single study that is telling you, well, let's scale up something like all over the world. Uh, it is the combination of the studies that gives you insight, which you can then kind of take on to design a policy that is going to be contextually relevant based on those insights. So you guys probably all know that, but the reason why it's worth pointing out is that you could not go anywhere uh, doing that with like three of us, or in fact when JPAL was started, I think we were eight affiliates. Uh, you can only do that if you build a movement and you put a huge priority in that movement being alive. 
And we have been fortunate at many junctures. Uh, one juncture is when uh, Rachel Glister joined JPAL as the first executive director and had uh, the vision of translating research into action from the very beginning, which is not only important because it tells us, oh, you've got to talk to policymakers, but it's important because it tells you what is the type of research that you're going to need to uh, be useful at any point in time. We got lucky when uh, uh, MIT supported our early work. We got lucky when we met Mohamed Jamil, who, uh, had, who saw uh, better than us probably where our vision was, was taking on. Uh, and then after this initial strokes of good luck, and maybe I think we also got lucky because we were coming in the profession, at least I was coming in the profession, in the right time at the right place where there was a tremendous excitement in doing empirical work. Uh, the labor economists before us, uh, um, David Card, George Angrist, Hido uh, Imbens, had done a, um, a lot of very careful thinking about what is a causal statement? Where can you say that you've made a difference? Where can you not say that you make, you, you're making a difference, etc.? and basically trained us, at least trained me, to think about, uh, to think about precisely those issues and to uh, you know, uh, uh, write as the beginning of, my, of the introduction of any of my paper the ideal way to know if, say, education affects wages would be to randomly assign education to people and then see. Well, at some point I got like, looking at Michael and Abhijit and these guys are actually randomizing, so that's what I'm going to do too. I'm going to stop writing that the ideal experiment would be to randomize. But I don't think I would have been in a position to think that this was such an important thing to do if I had not been trained in that work. So we, of course, uh, uh, came also on the shoulder of that more general credibility revolution that uh, you guys have to uh, you know, continue to lead forward. And then all of these things kind of gelled into uh, what the movement has become. Uh, JPAL has 200 affiliates plus 200 people who are, you know, uh, special research, uh, invited researchers. Together, these people have 1,000 projects which are either completed or ongoing. Um, the insight of this, of this uh, research has, uh, has led to some policy changes. So the way we count it is that uh, uh, if people have been affected by a policy that someone uh, from JPL has found to be effective at some point, that's 400 million people. That doesn't count all the people who were not affected by ineffective policy, which is, I think, one important part of our work as well, also it lessened some. So that work is, has become large. It's also, of course, become bigger than us. One of the things that I'm very proud about, and that's going to give me the transition to what I'm going to work on, is that people in Europe and in North America uh, and in Latin America have taken notice and say, well, maybe we can apply this kind of approaches as well. And it's not to say that um, the randomized evaluations were inexistent in US policymaking. In fact, that's where they started with the negative income tax uh, experiment as early as the, as the 70s. But it had gone into a path that was more about straight policy evaluation without that effort to, uh, which is better done in an academic environment than in the non-academic environment where uh, policy evaluation lived in the U in US policymaking. Uh, 
it had done without it had gone without the effort to put these things together and get uh, and get insights. And think now people have adopted that in Europe, adopted that in North America. The hope is that in one that it's going to continue and grow and fructify because boy, we have issues <laughs> that we have to solve in our problems in our countries as well. I am constantly amazed by um, the work that is being done uh, in development economics, uh, the, the, the sophistication of the, the, the experiments that people are doing today uh, is, is something that at least I never imagined was possible when we started. And this is not work that I'm doing. Uh, there, is, there is scale. That's some work that I'm doing, working at very large scale with government where you kind of embed with the government trying to help them do what they want to do anyway better, which allows you to work on very large scale to have an immediate impact. And the scale up is then kind of a matter of course because it's inside that context. So the work that Ben Olkin and Abhijit are doing in Indonesia, the work that we've been doing in Bihar, the work that uh, I, um, IGC has been doing uh, uh, for, um, in Pakistan or, or in Bihar as well. The other set of sophistication is people, uh, and there I'm looking at you students, for people you kind of appropriating the tool to take it in places that I was not imagining. And in particular, the newer experiments now, a lot of people are working with the sophistication and the intelligence of a lab experiment with very detailed treatment, amazing outcome collection, to think about, to directly think about uh, not only is this thing working, and often it's not even about whether a particular policy is working, and more about oh, what makes people tick, and what is this phenomenon that I think is important, really important. So for example, the work that uh, um, Suprit Kaur and Frank Stilbach and Sandil Melanathan are doing on scarcity to know whether it is in fact the case that when people feel poor, they are too worried about thinking about money and they have become super sophisticated about money but that leaves them less space to think about other things. Is that really a phenomenon? If you are, is that an important phenomenon in the world? So to answer that question, they set up an experiment. Uh, Suprit Kaur and Emily Brez have a whole factory of people making leaf plates. Uh, in Ghana, Bidzit and, my, and, and uh, Dean Carlin have, I, 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 have had set up a factory to make bags. So the level of kind of creativity in people's uh, notion of how we measure outcome, what are the experiment, is just mind-boggling. So I think it's just the beginning in terms of how good this is, is going to become, uh, and in terms of uh, how use. And I also hope that uh, it's going to—it's only the beginning in terms of the the uh, influence that it can have with with policy making. So. I you know, invite all of you to, be, uh, to play your part. Uh, you will realize that you will find something completely different uh, than we are doing, and you will take it in places that are going to be, uh, that I can't even imagine uh, right now. So let me now turn to uh, what we are trying to do in this book. So first of all, I'll thank Robin again, because when we wrote Poor Economics, which I think has had an influence in the kind of longevity of this movement, uh, 
uh, our first uh, book talk was, uh, was here. It was in this very room. It was very full, and I was very impressed that Robin could generate so many people to come listen to us. And, uh, and it was very fun. So when, as soon as I got this invitation from, from the LSE to come deliver this lecture, I was like, hmm, let me turn down this into a book talk. Uh, <laughs> LSE events are nice uh, book talks. So we were not going to write this book. Uh, when we finished Pro Economics, um, I was pretty sure that I had exactly one book into, in my system, and that that book was uh, done. And uh, you know, it's pretty natural thing for uh, maybe for an academic to to think. Let me reflect on the area of expertise that is mine and uh, that I know well, and put that all together. Uh, but uh, I generally don't like to stray out of my comfort zone in terms of giving policy advice and prescription. So I was not going to write another book, let alone another book about things that I am not an expert on. And then uh, 2015 rolled around, and uh, we, 2016, and we kind of started hearing the debates that were going on in the lead-up to the Brexit uh, referendum in this country, in the lead-up to the presidential election in the US, and in France we're having these debates all the time anyways, uh, there were no elections uh, at the time. I was like, this is crazy. These issues, take uh, um, Brexit, take uh, uh, trade, take immigration, Economic growth, inequality, climate change, social policy, those are issues where economists have something to say. And yet, no one cares. Uh, if you look, this is a YouGov poll that was done uh, before, the, in 2017. And it shows uh, who do you trust not when they talk about their field of expertise. So it's not about dating or anything. <laughs> And, okay, people don't trust politicians very much. 5% uh, of them are trusted. They don't even trust their own local politician, right below economists. <laughs> weather forecaster. The trust in weather forecaster <laughs> is twice the trust in economists. <laughs> well, like, give me a break. <laughs> like, we've really painted ourselves as a profession into a pretty bad corner. And we were discussing with our friends at the LSE, uh, uh, trying to say something, trying to get their voice heard, and being, uh, frankly, uh, quite depressed. And uh, um, we thought, oh, what, what went wrong? Is it something that is uh, just the UK, for example, or is it something deeper? So it turns out we did the same survey in 2018, in the fall of 2018, we, did the, we asked exactly the same question to 10,000 Americans. And we had exactly the same answer. We are second to the bottom after the politicians. And we are 25% of trust in the US as well. So economists are not trusted. Um, uh, and in fact, people disagree with economists on most issues. So what we did also in this survey is that we we took some of the questions. So the, the, the Chicago Booth uh, School runs a panel called the IGM Booth, 
uh, panel. Abhijit is part of it. I'm not part of it because I feel I don't know anything about most things. So I, I said, no, thank you very much. I cannot be part of this panel. But you know, occasionally, these this, uh, luminaries, maybe about 50 of the top uh, you know, excellent economists in top institutions, are being asked their opinion about uh, various issues. And um, so here is the first bar. What, what's this? Uh, this um, uh, so, sorry, here is the first bar. What are the uh, IGM booth respondents thinking about these issues? So imposing new US tariffs on steel and aluminum will improve American well-being. This was when the, these tariffs were first discussed in the US. And I haven't forgotten the bar. No one uh, thinks that it would be a good idea. People either disagreed or they strongly disagreed. And in fact, it's, it's one of the questions where uh, everybody, like a lot of people actually answered. So it's not even that the people who disagreed were hiding behind uh, not answering the question. Economists really feel that, uh, that trade barriers are not a good thing. But when you ask um, our respondents, 32% uh, of people think that uh, uh, they would be, uh, they would be, uh, it would improve average US well-being. So that's one example. Um, so not only they don't trust us, but uh, they kind of uh, follow through with that mistrust by not sharing opinions. Here in a, another one, uh, migration. So here I'm, I'm, I'm comparing the, uh, just to give you some UK numbers, I'm comparing the, the IGM pool, booth pool to a YouGov pool, which is in the UK. Uh, so the average uh, American citizen would be better off if a large, uh, larger number of low-skilled foreign workers were legally on, uh, allowed to answer the US each year. About 50% of people uh, agree, 28% of people are uncertain, and only 9% uh, disagree. But if you look at the uh, UK, uh, respondents to the UK, 44% uh, of um, uh, Brits thought that immigration was much too high, 26% it was too high, and it kind of stayed relatively stable over the year. So people are much, uh, are, don't agree with economists on migration either. And so we've has asked this question, uh, many, many IGM polls question to our respondent, and generally they really strongly disagree. The average percentage point gap between an, an economist say agreeing on a statement and the people agreeing on this statement is of the order of 25 percentage point. And uh, it's not because people are not aware only, it's not only because people are not aware of what, uh, what uh, economists think. So one, of course, very big, very present question um, that we all have, uh, will have to confront is the idea of what to do about climate change. Um, as you might know, uh, the uh, yellow jacket, Gilets Jaunes movement in Paris was uh, started as uh, anti-carbon uh, uh, tax movement. So the Macron government tried to impose a carbon tax so that would increase the, 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 the cost of oil and people were really uh, upset. So, it's, so this is an anti-carbon tax uh, Quote, it says, uh, the money of, um, of, of climate is, is in the fiscal paradise, not in the pocket of, uh, of poor people. 
so Carbon Tax, so, um, Luigi Tingales and Paola Sapienza did an interesting uh, study uh, with the exact of, uh, example of carbon tax some years ago. They, they asked people what they thought, whether they thought that it would be, be better to have a carbon tax or to impose a cap on emission coming from cars. Economists love carbon tax, don't like so much regulation, so most economists think carbon tax is better. Most people think that just imposing caps is better. So then what they did is that they, 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 asked peop they told people, but you know, most experts think that the carbon tax would be better. And then they re-asked the question, or the, it was a, kind of a different group, and the effect is none. People are like, well, whatever, I'm, still, I'm sticking with my opinion. Uh, thank you. So it's not that they don't know necessarily what economists have to say, it's that they've decided not to listen to them. So what is that? Uh, part of that, I think, comes from our own uh, fault as a profession. Uh, I do think that uh, as a profession, we have uh, let the role of economists in the public domain be taken by people who are not necessarily always economists in the sense that we think they are economists. So instead of a lot of academic economists being on TV, you have the chief economist of uh, Nomura or another bank, which is fine, they have skills, but they are not like, they, they, they are not the academic economists. They have a view, they are, after all, they are supposed to uh, do well by their firm. So I think the, the notion of what has percolated in economics has been a, a pretty um, economics 101, uh, deep trust in uh, markets at all costs, uh, which uh, and to some extent the, the validation of the policymaker's instinct of uh, you know tighten your belt, it will always come back to you eventually. And the thing is, over the last 30 years, it has not gone back to people eventually. As inequality have exploded uh, in the US, in the UK, and even increased in the rest of continental Europe, uh, median wages have become have continued to stagnate. People fully understand that. And so eventually you have a profession that keeps saying it's going to trickle down and it's not trickle down and it's like not surprising that people don't trust us. But it's a bit unfortunate. <laughs> you could say, well, whatever, it's sad. Uh, we have to give up. But it's very unfortunate because not thinking about these issues in all these issues that I put on the board before, trade, migration, climate change, social policies in an intelligent way, it's destroying us. It's really destroying our societies. The, the fact that you can now predict people's opinion by knowing like three things about them, this level of polarization in our societies, it kind of both the result and, and, and reinforces the fact that people aren't talking to each other about the issues. And um, when, so, bringing back some kind of reasonable conversations is essential. And the thing is, as a profession in the academic department, there is a wealth and a subtlety and frankly not much ideological bias in my opinion. If anything, when you ask the IGM booth question, you compare to what people answer, economists tend to be somewhat uh, more liberal. At least they're more optimistic. They tend to think that things will work out in the end. But when you go to the profession, both all the fields, macro, micro, labor, development, everything, people are so like critical and try to understand and put in the questions 
and none of that really filters. You either like the, have the kind of uh, magic Kool-Aid discourse, or people who kind of go against economists as a profession and say, we got it all wrong. And so what we decided we had to do is to say, well, let's try, let's spend uh, a bunch of time cultivating ourselves, uh, learn, you know, teaching ourselves what the profession is doing, and what we manage to do with poor economics for development, can we do the same thing for these issues that are you know, eating us today? And that's why we decided to write this book. So I'm not going to go chapter by chapter on what this book is about, but what I'm going to do is just to give you very briefly, and I actually have not calculated when I started, you should tell me at what time I should stop. Uh, because my talks are a bit like accordion, you know, they are elastic. <laughs> Um, 15 minutes? 15 more minutes. Excellent. You're going to get uh, almost everything that's in this book. Um, <laughs> so what, we what, what I decided to do today is, not, instead of going chapter by chapter and say, well, this is what we learned on migration, this is what we learned on climate change, etc., I'm going to take some of the themes that are threading through the books. And we discovered those kind of almost after the fact, having, having written the book. Uh, but um, having had the, the, the privilege of doing that, we, we can now tell you what seems to, to come. Oh, let me skip that. Uh, the first lesson is uh, incentives are overrated. So that is something that I think you drink with your breakfast cereal, the milk that is in your breakfast cereal when you're an economist is incentives. It makes everything tick. Uh, empirical models, empirical, etc. And uh, this is actually something which has percolated uh, uh, in the policy world, where there is, for example, when you're thinking about social programs, this huge concern that people are going to become leeches and sponges if you're giving them too generous social programs, because they'll understand that you know, they know which way the, the bread is buttered, and there is no point working hard if you are guaranteed some security. Uh, so there was effort uh, to, uh, uh, by policymakers to kind of make everything incentive compatible or some version of that. So that is something which is not just economist. But it turns out, when we looked at it, that it's really not that obvious that people are sensitive, very sensitive to financial incentive. Uh, I'll give you just one example, and, but you'll find many, many uh, in the book, uh, which is... Um, a, a, a series of randomized controlled trials run by many different people on conditional cash transfers. And usually when people look at conditional cash transfer, they look at the impact that it has on, uh, say, education or health. So in a conditional cash transfer, you give people money, but it's guaranteed as long as they send their kids to school, for example. So in principle, it should, uh, by, you know, in economics uh, 101, if it's enough money, it should have a big income effect, so people should uh, work less, because now they, their livelihood is assured. So this is a bunch of, uh, uh, this is work that uh, Ben Olken, Rimahana, and Abhijit did, going back to a bunch of RCTs and look at, look, looking at labor supply. And because they are all RCTs, you can look at labor supply of the prime age adults. Nothing in the program is encouraged them to work. And what you're finding is uh, nothing. Basically, there is no impact of getting free money, and in some cases, it's quite a bunch of money, on labor supply of the adult in the family. And in truth, we knew that, or we should have known that, 
maybe we kept it a little bit uh, secret, but as economists, we should have known that because after all, the first big randomized control trials were the negative income tax experiments, which not only guaranteed people an income, but in fact, in, on top of that, taxed it away. So should really have discouraged people from working. And in the, the, the bottom line finding of the negative income tax experiments were that the uh, labor supply effect were very, very limited. So this is kind of coming that this is zero rather than limited, but there is not the, the earnings are not taxed away. So the poor don't seem to be that sensitive to uh, either income effect or even substitution effect. Uh, the, the middle class, the people that you could uh, that that you might want to potentially to tax, uh, uh, they also don't seem to be uh, willing to you know, ready to stop working if there is more uh, income available. This is um, uh, uh, data from the um, the Alaska, a study of the Alaska Permanent uh, Fund, uh, and what they find, what the researchers find in this case, is that the uh, so this is a different D for a, a synthetic uh, control type thing. So you try to create a group of states that really look similar to Alaska in every respect. And you're looking at um, uh, full-time employment rate and part-time employment rate. And they basically track each other very nicely before and after the introduction of the Alaska Permanent Fund. And in fact, the part-time employment rate is actually larger in Alaska. Uh, so if anything, you know, that's actually should read full-time. So if anything, there is just the same full-time plus more part-time. So there was no negative income effect from the Alaska Permanent Fund. And that's about $5,000 per adult per adults per year. And then, of course, we might worry about the, the rich as well, is that the rich are very sensitive to financial incentive. I think they are in one way. Tax evasion is very responsive to financial incentive. So one needs to worry about that, uh, in particular in Europe. I think a bit less in the US, because where are the rich going to go? But in terms of labor supply, the, the consensus, as Reno you know, reflected, for example, in Emmanuel Sayer's review of, uh, of, the, um, of, of the labor supply work, is that the labor, the labor effort of even the, of, the, of the very rich is not very sensitive either. And it's pretty obvious that what they care about is, is being richer than the next guy. Uh, and you know, the level doesn't really matter so much. So that's uh, one, one lesson, that I, and we keep uh, continuing. But one, so that's kind of useful because it tells you, number one, you can increase taxes. It's not, going to dis it's not socialism or communism. It's not going to disrupt your economy. You can increase taxes because people are going to continue to work. And that means that a country like the US, for example, that has a, a tax-to-GDP ratio that is much lower than the rest of OECD, could increase it by a combination of taxes on the rich, and although that's politically very unpalatable, economically it would be feasible and would not be the end of the economic world. They could increase the taxes on the middle class as well. They could redistribute it to the, to the poor without generating a disaster either. So we can keep that in mind. One issue is that, as I was saying, that's the political issue, is can you even do it politically? Is, um, that people actually have bought in the idea that other people are very responsive to incentive. So since we were not going to write a whole book without doing at least one experiment, we did, um, we did an experiment on our sample of 10,000 people that we surveyed in 2018. And we just gave them, to half of the people we told them, we, gave, we asked them some questions about themselves. 
what would you do if there was a UBI of $13,000 a year? Um, would, you, uh, would you stop working or stop looking for work? And um, most people said, uh, uh, no, not at all. Uh, very few people uh, say even a little bit that they would do it. But when they asked, so the other half of the sample was asked, why would the average person like you do? And 50, they think that 50% of the others would uh, be super sensitive, would stop, would, uh, would stop working. Um, this is more of an incentive thing. Does a Medicaid program with no work recommend discourage beneficiaries from binding work? Not me, but them, yes. Um, raising taxes, if taxes were larger, would you stop working? Would your wife stop working, etc.? No, I wouldn't, but they would. And so that, of course, makes the politics difficult because if people think that other people are, are uh, uh, sensitive but they are not, then they think that they are going to be taken advantage of by the system. So then we, uh, and then I want you to use this as a transition, which is another, uh, one thing that is linked to the people not being that motivated by financial incentive but being motivated by other things is whether they would move for a job. And you can see that 50% uh, of them think that people, this actually, the question is a bit different, is should, should they move for a job? So 50% of things think that yes, they should move for a job, but this is actually asked among people who are today unemployed, and we ask them, would you move for a job that's 200 miles away? And uh, um, two-thirds of them said that they would not consider moving for a job that's 200 miles away. <coughs> which brings me to my second lesson, which is the economy is sticky. Much, much more sticky than we like to believe in our model. So in, uh, take, uh, you know, most uh, models work along the idea that if something, your, your economic circumstances change, there is growth, there is crisis, there is trade, there is automation. People are going to move about, and then we need to worry about what's happening at the margin once all of these adjustments have taken place. But if people are stuck in place, then that's not the right way to think about, because then you need to think about, well, someone has actually been hit. If they are not going to move to uh, take advantage of the new opportunities that are created elsewhere in exchange, then they are frontally hit. And they are not going to make whole by thinking that actually someone else is benefiting or can buy themselves a, a less expensive shirt because they just lost their job. And it turns out that the economy is uh, much, much more sticky than even I, I, I realized. So this is from the census. It's looking at the number of people who moved uh, from county to county and within county in 1948 and 2016 in the US. So in 1948, every year, 14% of people move uh, within their county. And today, it's 7% moving within the county. 6% used to move from county to county, which is not maybe already huge. It's 4% today. And a lot of this decline actually started in 1990, precisely when some counties started to get hit by, by trade uh, and by the competition with China. And what this is, um, so, why is that the case? Why are people not, not moving? There is a, a, a poem we quote in the book which is very popular on the internet, which is about, it's more about international migration, but I think we can think about this way. It's people do not, people are not going to leave behind their status and their social network and their parents who are taking care of their kids and all of that for a better job. 
No, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And I think that applies to international migration because actually, although it's very difficult, difficult to convince journalists of that, migration flows are very low, not very high. And that does apply to uh, internal migration where people aren't moving to the opportunities that they might have. That, of course, if people aren't moving from a place to another, that really, and I'll, I'll come back to policy implication in a minute, but you can already start to introspect of where that leads us. We really have to think much differently about many issues. The third lesson is um, we have to dis dispute taste, or the, the gustibus est disputandum. Uh, you will recognize, if you're a bit of an economics nerd, uh, the, uh, the title of an article by uh, Becker and Stigler, The Gustibus Non Est Disputandum, and then the, uh, the title of an article by Fair saying, no, The Gustibus Est Disputandum. So a really kind of um, um, methodological premise of economics is you don't, you know, preferences are what they are, we take them as given, we try to understand what they are, and run policy around them. Uh, but in fact, when you start looking at it, preferences are so much not that. Uh, for example, the, 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 the basic, the, the, the very strong and very kind of powerful uh, idea in Becker-Stickler is that preferences are stable, and therefore they are your preferences. They are not affected by what other people do. Your behavior might be affected by what other people do because you're learning things or you want to conform for whatever reason, but these are not your deep preferences. Your preferences are not influenced by your identity or whoever you are. Your preferences are not influenced uh, by uh, who you happen to uh, have lunch with in the morning. And it turns out from uh, looking at you know, all, both the economic literature on social networks, the literature on uh, um, uh, behavioral economics, uh, that the, the, the psychology literature on, on, on people getting in contact with each other, that preferences are anything but stable. And I'll give you just one example, uh, which is a, a lovely, lovely paper by Ernst Fair and Marcel Maréchal and, and colleagues from Switzerland. Where what they look at is, um, so they, they, they bring a bunch of uh, bankers, it being uh, Zurich, it's full of them, uh, so Swiss bankers to, to the lab, and they ask them to throw uh, uh, dices. Don't look too much at the graph, listen to me, because you'll understand the graph better once, you, once you, <laughs> I actually tell you what needs, what's in the graph. So they ask people to throw um, a dice, uh, a coin. And then they said that they are going to be paid as a function of the number of um, uh, tail that they are getting. They are not monitored, so they can cheat as much as they want. Uh, uh, there is another study where they actually filmed them, and it's pretty hilarious because when people want to cheat, they don't just like write down tail; they flip until they find tail, which is kind of, uh, which is kind of uh, specification searching, like taken to uh, taken to an extreme. In any case, uh, so they, so people, um, uh, so you you don't know what individual people do, but you can look at what they do on on average. And what they've done, so this is the, so what they, what they do is that they uh, ask uh, people to, they ask the bankers to uh, reminisce on uh, either 
their last job day at the work, so to think about their identity as banker, or to think about their um, uh, identity, or, or to think about the, the weekends, you know, the last time they were with their family. And um, uh, then they ask them some questions, like for example, uh, 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 social status is primarily determined by financial success. So people whose uh, professional identity is uh, activated uh, are more likely to think that success determined. Uh, then I realize this is not quite the graph I want. This is a more spectacular graph than the one I want. But what they do next is that they compare uh, the uh, number of successful coin flips in those two conditions, which were randomly assigned. And the bankers who were assigned the banker identity cheat more. And that means that we, it's like they are, they are the same people. They are just equally bankers. They're just like reminisced about their, their... So it is clear that you're, you know, even being a good person, it's not even about preferences. It's about behavior, moral behavior, is so influenced by uh, uh, subtle, you know, small things. <coughs> I think preferences are not stable. Preferences are profoundly affected by whom we are apart, whom we grow up with, etc. And that is another thing that we really have to take into account. The last, and it's related, is maybe an exception to that, is that you're finding sort of as a thread to many underlying things. Is people most of all care about uh, uh, their, if they don't care about money, they do care about uh, their position in the social network. So people get uh, upset when they realize they make less money than other people. Uh, bankers want to be more financially more successful than others. That's one way in which people uh, define dignity. Another way in which people define dignity is when you ask people what they really want from a job. Uh, uh, it's, no, it's not so much money as a sense of purpose. And there is a big difference in, in, in people's happiness, depending on whether they have a job, they describe themselves as being a job that has a sense of purpose. So having a job that has a purpose, having a job that corresponds to a career, having an identity that is linked to this, to this job, your position in the social network, all of that is sort of determined, is creating in this kind of loose notion of dignity that seems to be uh, kind of always coming back. And when people dig dignity is attacked, is when they also become, you know, like become uh, more likely to have um, aggressive behavior towards outgroups and things like that. So you can activate people' dignity, make them feel good about themselves, and then they would become less likely to to have uh, um, uh, in experiment to have. Uh, to exhibit kind of out, uh, xenophobic or anti-outgroup behavior. You make feeling people bad about themselves and they, they will kind of return racism and xenophobia. So that's uh, the, the fourth thing that, again, is completely determinant. So go back, for example, to the moving part. You know, when people uh, have been working at the same job for 20 years and they've moved through the rank and they think of themselves as an identity as a furniture maker, one reason why they are not going to be so delighted to move 200 kilometers away to sell furniture instead is because that's the whole dignity is going away. And one reason why you're finding people getting very angry is when their response to it, in fact, makes it worse in a way. They don't move to the whole places. Um, 
collapses, the economy collapses, they need to go on disability on, or, or something like that, and their dignity is even more attacked. One way in which there are many things we talk about in the book to make the point, but I think the most uh, poignant uh, uh, part of it is uh, the, the, the Angus Deaton and, and Kay's uh, Death of Despair facts, which is the huge growth that you can see in the US as a whole and in specific counties, in particular in the middle of the deaths by suicide, opioid overdose, alcohol overdose, etc. So this is literally killing people. Now, where does it lead us? I'm realizing I'm out of time, so I'm just going to tell you, uh, and then you can, as your homework before you read the book, think about this kind of principle and how you're thinking about the policy differently. Of course, we have to think about trade differently, because if people are not moving, when their jobs are disappearing, and nobody is moving, then that creates like blighted, uh, uh, blighted, uh, uh, situation. I don't know if that that blighted actually, but you know, shatter the shatter the situation, and uh, um, with you know, with from the work uh, in, in India by Petya Tobalova, and then in the U.S. with uh, David Otter, uh, Gordon Hansen, and David Don, uh, we've seen kind of the whole thing on spooling. About uh, uh, so empirically, we have seen that we do need to rethink trade. Uh, the other one is, uh, I already made the point, don't get, don't get scared of taxes, uh, at least as economists. You can be scared of them as when you're thinking about what's the political argument to be made. I'm, 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 I'm not naive that way, but at least know for yourself that this is something that we, there is nothing to be scared about. And I'm not even just talking about the super rich. I'm also talking about the merely rich. The other one is we can figure out climate change. Um, this is an issue that I, you know, is very dear to uh, to many. And in a way, you could say, well, the only it's very difficult because the reality is that to figure out climate change, people are going to need to change their behavior. That is not just going to be able to come from better technology and the like. And as economists, we've been like really reluctant to to do that. But if preferences are much more fluid than we think then at least your generation can start you know, wanting smaller cars or no car whatsoever and wear thicker sweaters in the, in the winter. That's possible. I, I don't think it's that impossible. And once we have that squared out, then of course we can, we can make progress. The last one is uh, uh, we have to rethink social policy. Uh, we still live from, so this is an image from a Victorian poorhouse. So in the Victorian era, uh, the, the social policy was made to make, you know, to punish people uh, who needed help, partly because they shouldn't get too comfortable. Uh, Victorian ethics got a big booster shot in the Reagan era and in the Thatcher era in the UK, and we haven't gotten out of it. Because although it's Reagan who dreamt it, it's Clinton who did it, and uh, doing ending welfare as we, as we know it. And in part, it's because of that deep belief and the incentive and the problem is, so I think, it, of course, it has a direct consequences on the poor. Uh, because when, uh, when you feel that uh, uh, you, you are kind of harassed by the system, first of all, the poor are often uh, are not taking advantage of the services they could avail of, like uh, food stamps, 
because they don't want, or food banks, etc., because they don't want to be seen as, or to think of themselves as not worthy. And the system is like happily reminding them over and over again that they are like suspicious at, at, uh, at best. The other consequences is on everybody else. Because people, are, if they are trained to despise the poor and to despise anybody who need help, then the consequence is that the big worry that people have is that should that happen to them? And therefore, you find people to be extremely conservative in a way and resistant to any sort of change because they think that, well, that's going to create disruption. The disruption is going to hurt me. I know my cousin, my neighbor, it happened to them. And then I'm not going to... Uh, to, not only I'm not going to get help, but I'm going to lose uh, all, all, uh, all, all dignity. So I think that we need to put back uh, dignity and respect uh, and, care, uh, and care at the core of social protection. I'm going to leave you with that and thinking about how to design it. Thank you very much. Okay, so thank you, Esther. Um, I guess the, the, the overriding feeling I had having sort of read the book was sort of strangely one of hope that there was a, you know, that we could begin to apply that we, all the economics we know and love to, to important topics. But I, 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 I had a sort of first question before we turn it to the floor. This is a, a, a chart showing what undergraduates at the LSC studying economics uh, you know, how they answered the question at the top. So what are the most pressing um, uh, uh, problems that economists should be working on? And what's really striking here, and this is the, I think, the third year undergraduates, and the second year undergraduates, it's almost identical. And so the question to Esther is, so reading the book, I did feel like at least, let's, let's have a go, let's try to sort of begin to apply economics, do something. But the, what I wanted to focus on, because the current obsession of mine is this one, climate change. Obviously, Nick is here, and uh, there's many around uh, the LSE who are interested in this topic. And the, why I find it so troubling is that when I think about it, it's super complex, it's going to affect everybody across the world. So the question to Esther is, so, you, you know, we have these techniques, talked about some of them in the book, but what, the question is sort of, what do we do tomorrow? How do we begin to bridge that gap between what we mainly feel, which is like, oh my God, we're all going to die, or you know, uh, you know, or maybe we're not going to die, to doing actually something that feels like it's a first step to coming up with some stuff which will actually make a difference. And I'm asking in the context of climate change because of all the stuff that I read in the book, this is probably the one which, you know, after global poverty, is coming into focus as being. You know, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, challenges that, that humanity will have to face in this century. So to start off the questions, Esther, if you don't mind, could you just give us sort of a picture of what should we do tomorrow about this? Yes, so uh, first of all, I want to know, like, who really thinks that rowing is one of the... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when you tell me, I'll talk to you about climate change. Second of all, I am I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised to see that nobody is that interested in Brexit. Brexit and rowing have the same... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so, it suggests that uh, once we, you know, once the short-term circumstances are sorted out, you guys are uh, going to be able to address the real issues. 
So we do have a chapter on, on climate change uh, in, in the book. And it's really going to be the same thing as global poverty, which is there is no magic bullet uh, that I know of or that anybody knows of. Or maybe some people think there is one, but I really don't think there is one. Uh, and it's going to be a, a, a combination of a combination of things. And I'm not going to bore you and telling you what combination of things. But I think we need to take on board that people that the uh, um, behaviors are going to change. Uh, are needing, will need to change. The actual consumption behavior of people are, are needing to change. And one of the things to figure out is how to get to that change. And as I said, when I was discussing preferences, I think it is quite possible. And I do think that the, uh, the current, you know, the Extinction Rebellion and Greta and all that are playing are actually a very important role in putting that issue front and center and therefore making people kind of more aware that this is something that is coming to them to discuss. Then there is, you know, it's going to be a, a bunch of, like we have to start almost from scratch like we were in, on thinking about global poverty um, several years ago in, okay, what is going to work? What is going to work technically? What is going to work on behavior? What is going to work to uh, ensure that and the technical solutions that we are thinking about are actually uh, not only uh, uh, working on paper, but also working in real life. And unfortunately, what we're, what we're seeing sometimes is that what seems very promising in the lab, or you know, is like home insulation, for example, look like intuition is that it should be fantastic. In practice, it's kind of undone by people's behavior. So we have to go back to the drawing board and think of something else. So it's, it's going to be, again, there is not going to be a magic bullet. There is going to be many silver pellets. Uh, but the combination of the sort of the excitement, passion that your generation is feeling, the tools that hopefully we made available, and uh, the, you know, some policy work that will need to be done in developing countries, I think it's going to be pretty essential to tie it to pollution because it's kind of the same thing that leads to climate change and that actually kills people exactly today, which uh, uh, limit a little bit the wedge between what developing countries feel it is their interest and what, uh, uh, what the, other, the rest of the world would like them to do. So we don't have uh, a roadmap, uh, but we have, I think, a call to action. And uh, uh, we are certainly hoping to, to be part of that uh, movement moving forward. It's certainly the next biggest issue. What's the point of having a good education if you're underwater. Uh, the gains that we have made on global poverty in the last 30 years are significant and magnificent in some way. I think that's the one place to look at and get hope. And you know that infant mortality was divided by two and maternal mortality was also reduced and deaths from HIV and death from malaria. But all of that is gonna count for very little if we don't address climate change quickly. But I do think it's possible and uh, I count on you to make it happen. Brilliant, thank you very much. Okay, so we have about 10 more minutes um, to, for people to ask questions, which I'm sure there are some, so if people can raise their hands and then I'll collect a few. Um, so this gentleman here. Right. 
Uh, thank you for sharing, uh, Professor Dalflu. Um, my name is Aaron. I'm a third-year academic student at LSE. So I was really inspired by your work on using experimental uh, data to build a better world. So, um, but we all know that not uh, a lot of countries have that high willingness to accept this approach. For example, like some of the countries, they are very used to um, policy first approach and some of other democratic countries they um, have this pressure from their own people to make things fast. So uh, in your opinion, um, what are the things that economics can do to improve such situations? Thank you. Okay, Andres at the, the front. Thank you. Well, I'm sure, Esther, that I join everybody in this room in congratulating you for all that great work and all that achievement. Here's my question. One simple way of summarizing the stuff that you did with Michael and Abhijit and everybody else is that you raised the standard of proof as to what it is that we know, um, a new standard of what evidence is reliable, when causality is, in fact, uh, something we can say something about, etc. One way, on the other hand, of summarizing your lecture today is that no matter what it is that science can say, we human beings are very good at believing other things. Um, and that's not only a, an insight from this line of work, behavioral economics, identity economics, was pioneered by Akerlof and others, is telling us exactly that. As you put it, if, you know, if, if I know what television channel you watch, I pretty much know exactly what you believe in every domain, no matter how many papers you've read. So don't you worry about the, tenden, the tension between these two things? We are very good at knowing what we know. Uh, we're also very bad at believing that and then putting it into policy. So if resources are very scarce, shouldn't we be putting more time and effort into the latter, uh, given that we made so much progress on the former? So let's collect a few more. There's one up the, the left hand there. One down the front again, and then we'll start with that batch. Okay, so. Hi, good evening, Dr. Uh, Professor Duflo. I am uh, a PhD candidate in environmental economics at the LSE. Um, over the time and uh, the questions that pop up there, uh, economics has been kind of strained by what economists think, but what would be your view be on cross-disciplinary studies? How much do the social sciences need to integrate um, to provide a solution to these uh, social problems that we are seeing? Thank you. Question at the front here. Um, hi, thank you for your uh, insightful talk. Um, so, relating to your point that you made about generalizability um, in conducting RCTs, what, in your view, could be the role of qualitative research in, for example, um, changing things like climate change, I think maybe not just preferences, but cultural factors might play a role in how willing people are to change, and how do you think qualitative insights could um, give more uh, richness to research. So I think what I'm going to do is unfortunately put Esther under a battery of questions because otherwise there's another one there and then another one up the, 
the back there. And then we will let you let you go because we're not going to get through all the questions, but at least we can have a... Uh, yeah. Um, thank you, Professor Duflo, for your presentation. Um, uh, my name is Namira, and I'm a PhD student at LSE, and I will be using uh, probably uh, RCT for my research. So I'm interested to uh, ask about the experimental studies that you have done. So in, in your exper experience, performing experimental research about poverty, what are uh, the things that you find to be the most challenging on the ground uh, for you to be able to capture uh, the true phenomenon that other uh, researchers should be aware of? Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, Hi. Any question on this side? You've been very. I think silent. I've got a mic here. One, and I, and I think you have there, two okay. questions in one here because yeah, the, the professor okay. next to me wants to ask a question as well. Hi, my, thank you very much. My name is Fabiola Franca. I'm a, I'm a VC, venture capitalist in London. I have a very quick question, no comments from you, just a very quick question. Uh, there's a candidate in the States, uh, Andrew Yang. He's going to uh, run for the elections uh, next year. In his program, he's championing, championing the uh, minimum wage, or as you call it, freedom dividend, uh, basically giving $1,000 to everyone. What is your view on that? Are you uh, for or against? And what are the impacts in terms of the wider economic policy for the country and possibly uh, the world if, that's a, if such a policy is applied across the world? Okay, I think that's enough. Uh, oh, he has the mic, let him. Oh, so what, sorry, last, <laughs> last, last question. Thank you very much. In your book, your book seems to be about the poor don't enough mon have enough money in a market society. That's what it all seems to be about. What do you tell people who want to change the system, say, subsistence, cooperative socialism? Okay, I think um, that that's given you a bunch of questions. So yes. why don't you try to uh, uh, cover, that, cover that ground? Um, so I'm going to take uh, um, uh, the... the a question on uh, convincing governments and the question of convincing people uh, together. Uh, so I, you're right. I mean, what we, what we write in the, in the foreword of the book is we wrote this book to hold on to hope uh, that uh, it is possible to get through to people. Uh, but um, actually, my experience is, is, uh, is reasonably uh, uh, positive for that. And I don't know if uh, Rachel would agree. You know, she's gone back to the, to the policy side. And I don't know what is your experience that you were in the policy side, which is that when we started the, the experimental work uh, 15 years ago, or a little over 15 years ago, we were considered to be crazy, loonies, uh, to, do, uh, to, to try and set up experiments. And one thing that we have found that it's so easy to explain what you found. And it's so transparent compared to uh, other methods that eventually you are able to come to get through with the message. And one uh, virtue of the experimental approach, uh, other and above the fact that you know, we have confidence in the result, is that it is easy to convey uh, confidence in the results. And what I have seen in our 15-year-plus you know, uh, advantage at, uh, adventure at JPAL is actually more and more willingness of policymakers in developing countries, which has been our focus of actually looking at evidence, not just generating it, but looking at it. And you're right that not every country has the time to, to do experiments. There is pressure on what they are trying to do, and they, 
you know, they need to move quickly, etc. Even if they can do a little bit of experiments, it's always on the margin. But things, but at the same time, if they want to be successful, they also want to find the best way to do what they want to do anyways. And uh, often there is a menu of options. And when there is more evidence for the best option in the menu of options, and when this evidence is transparent, my experience has been that countries have been willing to go there. And if you take uh, the, the great achievement, for example, of reducing malaria death, one very, according to nature, one very important case of, of reason for that is the spread of bed nets. And the spread of bed nets is really a case in point, which is, uh, so it's not a magic bullet, a vaccine would be much better than, uh, than, than bed nets, but it's what we have now. And when bed nets were, when insect-treated bed nets were first introduced, there was this worry that you should not give them away because people are going to misuse them. And it was a kind of a genuine question. What is more effective? Is to give them away, and then you're going to have a lot around, but maybe people will misuse them. Or it's to sell them for a little money. Some people will not take them up, but the people who do take them up will use them more. And uh, although some I think some people had a kind of ideological view on this debate, but more in the ac academic profession. In policy making, I think people were kind of interested in what it is that's going to work. And Pascaline Dubin and then other people with her run a series of experiments showing that actually you can give them away for free, people are using them anyway, and you get a much wider coverage. And that argument won the day. And, that, and those bed nets were distributed for free in massive camps. Uh, and that contributed to the uh, malaria death. And even, for example, Bill Easterly, who was anti-free distribution at the beginning, kind of went back and very graciously said, well, Jeff Sachs was right, and free distribution is, is, it was the way to go. So this is just one thing. This is a small thing, maybe, but it's actually not such a small thing because lots of people didn't die as a result of it. And the, the, the focus on uh, the policy focus that there has been on... Uh, uh, some of the Millennium Development Goals, since then replaced by Sustainable Development Goals, on child mortality, maternal mortality, sending kids to school, etc., has kind of led to a certain form of pragmatism in developing countries, which, you know, if you're going to want to try to do something anyways, you might as well go with what there is evidence for. And since in the meantime the evidence was building up, then it was possible to, to spread. That said, I agree entirely with you that the one reason we started JPEG and the one kind of uh, a core gift of, of Rachel and joining us in JPAL at the beginning is we knew that there's no point getting the best evidence possible unless you have the effort of persuading uh, uh, policymakers. And now we have another more difficult issue, maybe, which is persuading citizens. Uh, and we know that persuading citizens are hard, is hard. Um, but we also know that, um, you know, absent some uh, unfortunate experiment with direct democracy, the, uh, a lot of the policy making is mediated by, by institutions uh, from, the, from the, you know, the, the, the council member, the parties, the deputies, the MPs, etc., which kind of have more time and, uh, to, to engage with the details of, of, of something and can present it to their... Uh, to their public in a way that is accessible. So I think we need to continue the persuading effort of the people. I think we've done the world and our profession a disservice in sitting this out until now. And that's why we wrote this book and try and come back. We realize it's not going to be easy and we realize we are, you know, to start with, we're going to mainly be talking to each other. 
But uh, I think if we start taking people seriously, uh, realizing that they are intelligent people and know they are not voting against their self-interest because they don't understand the issues, uh, there is a reason why they're leading to their, uh, the, where, where they got where they are uh, in terms of their policy and political positions, then we can, hopefully we can have a conversation. I do agree that there is a work that needs to be done on the act of persuasion itself in the same way that there is work that needs to be done on the policy making. But you have to, you've got to think that it's, that it's possible. Um, I think the, the, the other issues are, um, um, are more about the, the sort of the nature of running uh, experiments. And uh, uh, so I don't think, so just on the last question, our book is not about uh, that the poor are not enough money. I think you should read it to, to see what it is about. I think poverty is much different than just not having money. And to some extent, I'm not um, asking for overthrowing democracy, but we are asking for rethinking of some of the basic institutions we are living on. Um, experiments are fun. They are full of challenges. If, you, if we had the whole night, I would uh, tell them to you uh, uh, in the most uh, gory details, but, but we don't. So you'll discover them for yourself. Have fun. Uh, <laughs> do follow her advice and, uh, and spend a ton of time in the field uh, and do your own work, own qualitative work, and maybe work with some colleagues in other fields to so that they bring their own qualitative work. Uh, I won't address the UBI question now because we discuss it at length in the, in the book and the answer takes more than a tweet, so I don't want to get into it. Thank you.